Hey everybody, this is Dan Kidder, and today I am here in the studio with Tyler Melling. We are continuing our interviews that are uh, under the auspices of the Citizen Southern Utah Citizens for Ethical Government and Cedar City Politics and the uh, What's Really Happening in Southern Utah, the podcast. So for those who aren't aware, we have a city council uh, election coming up, and it's not like when you run for county commission where you have a seat A, a seat B, or school board, district one, district two, so you're running against a specific person. There are three seats coming available. Terry Hartley and Craig Isom are not running for re-election, and Tyler Melling is up for re-election, and he's our guest today joining us in the studio. So there were eight people who submitted uh, candidacy paperwork. One of them has dropped out. Mary Pearson has dropped out of that race. But because there are seven candidates for those three seats, there will be a primary in September. And after that primary, the top six vote getters will move on to the general election. It's almost like an episode of Survivor or something. Uh, they will move on to the general election in November, and the top three vote getters out of those six candidates will be elected to the Cedar City Council. So it's a little confusing. It's a little different than what we're used to with, with some of the other elections. So instead of doing one-on-one -on -one candidate debates like we've done in the past, because we had two candidates for one seat, where we have six candidates ultimately after the primary, for those three seats. We won't be doing one-on-one -on -one debates. We may do some sort of a forum where we bring in all six candidates after the primary, but instead we opted to do one-on-one -on -one interviews and each candidate will receive 45 minutes to tell us about who they are and answer some questions and give you the voters an idea of what they stand for and whether they deserve your vote. So, so far we have heard from uh, everybody but two candidates. And so our hope is that we will hear from them uh, in the next week and we'll be able to get them here into the studio for this. So I have with me today Tyler Melling, who is currently on the city council, and he is running for re-election for your second term. And uh, Tyler, go ahead and tell us a little bit. I'm going to start this timer here. Tell us a little bit about why you should be elected, re-elected, uh, what your goals are. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, um, so you covered the name part already, Tyler Melling. That's the only one people really check, right? They, and they the know that name. Yeah, it doesn't It doesn't show your political party affiliation on the ballot. It doesn't show um, your, uh, you know, your uh, platform or anything like that. It's just the name, right? Um, but... Uh, I'm, I'm on the Cedar City Council. I've been serving for almost four years. A uh, little bit about myself. I've, um, you know, as far as Cedar City, um, I wasn't a resident of Cedar until as an adult, as a, a student at SUU, but my roots are here. Um, both sides of my family go way back, as far back as Europeans uh, can go back in this area. Um, and so Cedar was always kind of home base. My dad was military, so we were all over the place as when I was a kid. Uh, but uh, uh, so I grew up mostly in Texas, a um, few other places, but, but was mostly in San Antonio. Uh, and um, at first I, I thought, well, why would I go to SUU even, you know, because 
because it was home base. It was a little farm town. Why would I want to go to school there, right? And uh, it it just lined up. It made sense. Um, I was really glad I did. I met my wife at the choir here um, when I found out she was not a distant relative of mine <laughs> because a lot of the girls that had local roots <laughs> were distant relatives, right? When I found out my wife wasn't, uh, I decided to uh, marry her. Uh, um, after school here, we uh, moved to Iowa where I went to law school, came back about eight years ago, opened up my own practice in estate planning. Um, I've since, uh, just in the last few months, um, been transitioning from uh, the estate planning world of law into real estate, you know, state regular regulatory compliance, um, water law, that kind of stuff. So that's where I've been. Um, it, anyway, just generally law rules, things like that. I, I really enjoy learning how they work. Um, and but it, in my law practice, I got a lot of phone calls from people um, asking for guidance what to do because they were having trouble opening up their businesses in this town. Uh, and I didn't know how to help them because it's, it's not the kind of thing where you just go and sue the regulatory agencies for permission to open. I mean, you could do that, but not very efficient, right? Especially when um, you're trying to open a business. And I, I think people who haven't ever worked for themselves or opened their own business, it's, it's hard to grasp that. All the rules that you have to comply with in order to feed your family. And and it's not just Cedar, it's it's anywhere, really. Right. Um, and, um, but there were things that I thought, you know, locally there are some solutions, there are ways we can help make that easier. Uh, so I ran for Cedar City Council. Um, and I was elected four years ago. Um, I don't know of the last time, uh, we, we've certainly had a young mayor in the past, but as far as city council member, uh, by at least a decade, the youngest elected in several decades, right? Um, uh, so it's it's been a little bit of a unique perspective. Um, I kind of tease my fellow council members every now and then, like, well, I have, I have more... Uh, I, I'm going to have a longer time to have to live with my decisions than you will, right? <laughs> and they don't always appreciate that, right? But it is a little bit different perspective. Um, when I first ran four years ago, we had just made it into the smart asset magazine, cheapest places to retire. That's changed a little bit. <laughs> That's changed quite a bit. <laughs> um, and, you know, and in part... Um, when when uh, COVID hit, that was right. So so I swore in at January of 2020, right? And then things changed quite a bit. And um, the decision that local leaders made to try to keep things open, let people feed their families, um, that really impacted our growth rate a lot. We went from an average growth rate of about 3%, which is very... Um, you know, that's been our growth rate on average for, what, 30, 40 years. Mm -hmm. We went from that to 12%, so four times the growth for about a two-year period. And it seemed like every time I went to a hiking trail, 
um, were to do something in the outdoors, there were 500 cars with California license plates there because California had been shut down completely. Yes. And so they were looking for places to recreate where they were still open and they could come and, and they could go do a hike and then go get a burger afterward. Right. And so, yeah, it was it was crazy. And I think that introduced this community to a lot of people who maybe would never have visited this community uh, in the first place. Yeah, and I agree. And and uh, so that's come with challenges. Um, but uh, oh, I, I always forget the phrase, out, um, out of adversity comes... Great opportunity. Opportunity, something, something yeah. like that. Um, and it finally forced us as a community to reevaluate a number of policies. Um, we've, and, and we can get into this a little bit more in depth in a minute, but we totally overhauled all of our water policy. Um, so that water wasters were no longer being subsidized by tax dollars, uh, but also developers were no longer being subsidized on the cost of water. And, was, and a big part of that is they have, they pretty much have to bring their own water rights. Yeah, or cases. or pay through the nose for it. Yeah, and 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 we can get into that later. Um, oh, we're going to talk a lot about water. Okay, that's fine. Um, and then, uh, um, but a lot of it too with our uh, processes of being able to uh, open a business. Too, we've had to reevaluate and say, look, if people are wanting to open. and It's not just Cedar City, though. I've noticed that for a state that promotes itself as a free state and, and high on the freedom scale and because we you know, are pro-gun, we're really, really protectionist of certain industries. And we put all of these obstructions in place. Um, before you can become a contractor or be, before and you I, need to cut I would say hair. not even certain industries, but almost all industries, we are uh, the highest number of professions that are state regulated in the country. It's crazy uh, to for, me. I it's think just... there was one state that, that had more. Probably California. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we do. We, we, um, we, we do it in the name of protecting the public. Um, but what's more harmful to the public than not being able to provide for your family. Yeah. Right. Um, and it, it's funny to me because I came from Virginia and Virginia is pretty strict regulatorily. Um, is that a word? Um, but w one of the local residents here has got some prominence. He, he's involved with the, the schools and um, he's a city council member in Enoch. He's moving to Missouri. Mm -hmm. And his big drive for that, he says, is I can build a shed on my property without getting a permit. You know, and it's just yeah. crazy that you have to have a permit to build a shed on your property or put a deck on your property or anything you do, you have to ask the government's permission to do that. Right. What do you think as a city council member, your influence is going to be on helping scale back some of that regulatory burden, both on, on the regular homeowner and, I mean, I, I started this business and built a studio, and it was just hoop after hoop after hoop you have to jump through. I'm paying for parking out there they don't even use. Right. I don't even use one parking space in the city's parking lot, but I have to pay more than a restaurant that uses 40 spaces a day because of the square footage of my studio. Right, and that is that is a policy. Um, there are so many layers to it, and, and, and so I, I came in just wanting to overhaul everything, right? And I didn't get to overhaul everything. And You're not a benevolent dictator? You don't have that kind of power? <clears throat> no, um, but we have been peeling back a number of things with businesses, especially on parking regulations, because, um, you know, if you look at places with fewer parking restrictions for um, landowners, especially in downtowns, for example, even in this state, 
Um, we have one of the highest percentages of asphalt uh, acreage in our downtown compared to other cities in this state. I think we're at 45% of our downtown acreage, uh, if you exclude the streets, is asphalt, is parking mm-hmm. lot. Um, Logan, Provo, a lot of these other college towns, closer to 30% or less. Um, and a lot of that is because of the required parking. And, and we, we're working on that. It's, it's been, it's, you know, little piece after little piece. No one wants to take a whole big bite. I would love to take a whole big bite, but well, and that, I'm okay that leads with. to a lot of different <clears throat> issues. Mm-hmm. First of all, the runoff. Right. So, and that, that's nasty runoff. It's full of antifreeze and motor oil and yeah. gasoline and everything else. Um, so it can't really be used very well. Uh, but it also doesn't get absorbed into the ground. Mm-hmm. It raises the overall temperature. Um, so, yeah, that creates. Well, and, and the infrastructure that we all enjoy is paid for by taxes. Yeah. And you don't collect much tax on a parking lot. Well, uh, it looks like uh, the Cedar, Cedar City Council is going to fix that behind my building here. Yeah. They're going to build a 100-foot building, a 10-story well, apartment building. Is that – well, you're not building it. No. But you're and, allowing uh, a developer to build it. And that – well, and that's not the case either. So what we've agreed to um, – when whenever we have city-owned property that someone's interested in, we have a disposal process. Um where first we put out to public disposal and we say, yeah, you know, we're, we're open to hearing that. Um, I can't think uh, off the top of my head of uh, another, I know there are two that we've denied where we said, look, we're not even gonna look at selling this property. Um, this was not one of those. We said, look, uh, in the heart of our downtown, an acre of asphalt, if someone has a better idea while preserving the parking spaces and adding shops, adding residences, residences to it, great. Um, let's hear proposals. And uh, so we're, we're in the process of putting that out for proposal now. Uh, in the next probably couple of months, we'll So hear. this development, this this 100-foot building, isn't a done deal yet? No, no. They, it's an option on the table. Well, and, and what we – some of the guidance in the proposals, we said, look, we – go ahead and make proposals within the the uh, parameters that city ordinance already allows. Um, if you want to get extra creative, um, make proposals that uh, um, rather than a variance from that, just a one-time exception, which I don't like, um, let's go ahead and, and use those proposals as a way to evaluate all of our policies. You know, is is there um <clears throat> some kind of magic number why why is 50 feet the magic number right now um if if it were at 60 feet in our downtown could that enable us to put more parking on lower levels i don't know that's where we're looking for um suggestions and if someone wants to make that proposal of 100 feet now do i think that one would fly my guess is no um but I'm just one vote on a council of five. So, so I, in D.C., they have a regulation in the in the city ordinances that no building may be taller than the dome of the U.S. Capitol. Mm-hmm. And it, it keeps those long, low, squat buildings. Um, and everybody goes, well, the Washington Monument's taller. And it's actually not because the Capitol's on a hill, Capitol Hill. Oh, and so in feet, number of feet high, yes, the, the Washington Monument's taller than the Capitol, but capitals up on a hill so it it's, hmm. it gets around that so what if we make an ordinance that no building may be taller than city hall you know 
right. But it, it's kind of counter to any any downtown you go to. That's where the big tall buildings are usually located. Is right in downtown. Right, and and what you do when you artificially and and that's part of the thing and suggestions, right? Is we want to constantly look at our policy because after World War II, when we implemented zoning policy and we artificially limited that height of buildings, what happens is in your core areas, development uh, and improvement of property where you've got your infrastructure invested comes to a screeching halt. You get a dead downtown. And then and then you force it to sprawl, yep. right? And that's we, we also want to minimize sprawl because that's bad for uh, water purposes, for tax purposes. You, you have to raise taxes. All the infrastructure sprawl. that yep. goes into that sewer, firehouses. We're going to have to build a firehouse on the south end of town now. Yep. So, yeah. Hey, speaking of kind of being a maverick, um, oh. You were the author of the Community Neighborhood Development Zones. Oh, and right. Tell us a little bit about what that does and what your thinking behind that was. Yeah. So um, let's see. That was a couple of years ago. Let me actually rewind a little bit more. Um, so about th- three years ago, give or take, I, I'd been on the council for a year. And... Uh, I started to feel it, it and I, I had a friend advise me when I first took office, look, don't stir things up too much right away because you have a lot to learn even if you disagree with people. And I found that to be true, right? I, I had a lot to learn. After about a year, um, um, one of the things that I noticed is uh, when we that, that uh, we, we were reevaluating some of the student housing parameters. Um, before I was on the council, they looked at the building heights and the, some of the building setbacks from property lines and things like that. But they were revisiting to look at some of the parking rules and landscaping and um, some of the aesthetics. And, and what we found is that uh, the more we, restrictions we place on aesthetics, the worse the work product is, right? So right. We, we made those recommendations instead of <clears throat> binding. Um, but um, there was a project that had been proposed and, and built um, where the owners had originally thought, you know, that we've got four stories of student housing. Why can't we put a little sandwich shop on the bottom floor? And I thought, that's a good question. I don't know why you can't do that. And I looked into the ordinance. There was no way legally to do that in city ordinance. And I thought, well, if if it's on a busy street near campus, why shouldn't you be able to do that? Right. Um, <clears throat> and especially, you know, the parking, you have to put in more parking lot and everything else. So if someone wants to go through all that added expense, why not let them, right? Um, so that was kind of the first foray into changing our land use rules. Um, now, I kind of joked at the time, I, I got a wife out of bad um, zoning policy because she lived clear over on the west side of campus as a student, um, and she'd shop at Lynn's and walk the whole way. And I was in choir with her and um, saw her walking one day and thought, she can't possibly be walking that far. And she was, so I gave her a ride. And, you know, so that, that bad policy got me a wife. Now, I don't want anyone else to get married out of it, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but they... It's not the model to follow. Right. That's not the best model to follow. But when you're five foot six, your options are somewhat limited, right? So, but they... Uh, um, so I, I wanted to find a way to open that up <clears throat> and allow people to um, 
be able, if they're building student housing, go ahead and put some commercial on the ground floor if they want to. And um, we were able to get that through and, um, you know, we'll see what that brings over time. Um, the, um, about, I want to say it was a few months after that, I said, you know, um, right now our zoning basically says you can build McMansions <laughs> or you can build townhomes and not a whole lot in between when it comes to residential size. Right. Um, More high density. Yeah. And, and well, and it's the way the numbers the, the on the construction side, the way it pencils out, right? If you're, if you're mandated to put in a certain lot width that has to have curb gutter sidewalk and all the amenities that we love and enjoy. Set we back don't love, so far from the street, so far from your uh -huh. neighbors, so far. You're basically yeah. creating little boxes. And sometimes that works in flatter areas, but especially in hilly areas, it just doesn't pencil out unless you're building McMansions. Or you scrape the land totally flat. Right. And so what our... Um, so, so my thought was, why can't we make it uh, create changes to our zoning policy that allow smaller single-family homes to be at a similar price point um, as as what we're seeing with townhomes and stuff like that? Right. And so, um, anyway, we uh, looked at those parameters and and decided, uh, you know, the minimum lot size, the lot width. Uh, that those were big contributors to that, um, and so there were. You know, I, I met with uh, several dozens of community members from different professions, different um, levels of community involvement, um, uh, different areas of town, and tried to get some feedback. and And it was a moving target, right? I'm, all I want to do is, can this be legal, right? Uh, to make a smaller single-family lot. Um, and some of the pushback you got blew my mind. Yeah. And, and you know where I'm going. There, and, there was a lot of weird pushback. And, you know, and I think a lot of it, too, comes from ignorance because um, we saw the same thing in, in Enix some years ago when uh, the minimum lot size was changed from a third of an acre to a quarter acre, which a quarter acre is the primo McMansion zoning in right. in in Cedar, right? But in Enoch, that was going to bring all kinds of social ills to allow people to live on a quarter acre. Now, the problem is, even on a quarter acre lot, let's say your home is a 3,000 square foot footprint. Um, that's a lot of land still that's over 6,000 square feet of turf or rock. Or weeds. Or weeds. Yeah. Right? And a lot, a lot of people don't want to maintain that. When I moved here, I sold my lawnmower. And I plan to never own one again. Yeah. And yeah, I, I hate working in the yard. This is not my thing. My yeah. yard, I, I have a natural scape in my backyard. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, um, but yeah, there's not, and, and, and not just that. I mean, one of the biggest issues that we've run into is we're aging as a community because the people who were raised here, born here, went to school here. They attain, you know, 18 or age of maturity, and there's no real job opportunities for them um, that are commiserate with the cost of living now. Right. And so they can't buy. They struggle to rent, and they end up moving away. And retirees who've sold their house in California for, you know, 
a million and a half dollars can come here and buy one for $350,000, $400,000. And so that raises the age overall, and that will cause declines in our school. God, look, have you been to Escalante? And, and what's happened there with their school system? Yeah, well, and and it's it's interesting because the the principles that founded this community, the culture that founded this community, the um, the attitude toward housing was build what you can afford. So right. my my great grandparents had a house on 100 East here, in, in Old Dog Town is what they called it. Um, on the top floor were my great grandparents and their six kids. Bottom floor was. Um, his brother and their six kids, and then the two bachelor uncles, 16 people living in a, in a, in, and 650, was, 750 square feet. And that one was a little bigger. I want to say it was closer to 1100 on each story, Yeah, but still, um, that's a lot of people in one house. Um, and they built it to the extent they could afford. And they, you know, that's, that's what people used to do now. I mean, it takes people like, like, so now I, I work as a, uh, as a, uh, a construction company's general counsel, because you need a lawyer to get through all the red tape, all this, just the state stuff alone, all the regulatory compliance to be allowed to build shelter for people, yeah. right? And when and and people aren't allowed to do it themselves anymore. Well, some uh, would argue though that with all of the growth that we're experiencing, twelve mm-hmm. percent growth, that some of those regulatory burdens it kind of act as a little tap on the brakes to oh, they slow certainly things do. down a little bit. And and what they do is they, they put the brakes on just enough to raise the price high enough that our kids have to move away. Yeah. And that's and that's the unfortunate part, right? So the neighborhood zones allow you to build with less setback. Yeah. So the the trade off is um, because it's a significantly reduced lot size, frontage requirement and everything else the two main stipulations are um, it has to be single family detached and um, and it needs to have covenants that um, have some kind of owner occupancy requirement. HOA. And how, how they decide to enforce that is up to them. Right. Right. Uh, we left that fairly open. Because there were quite a few concessions that you had to make. Oh, yeah. In order to get this approved. Right. Um, and uh, but that was the quality control provision, right? Is, is the biggest one is is that owner occupancy? Um, even here in town, the owner occupancy restrictions on a couple developments that just did it voluntarily years back. Um, the price per square foot is about thirty percent lower than peer, uh, you know, than comparables because it's not that that neighborhood isn't open to the investor market, so that right. keeps the prices lower. Um, <clears throat> so in my book, that that was. Um, How many people? Because this didn't require anybody to do anything. This allowed the market to decide if people, if it made economic sense to those developers right. to do this. How many of these have have actually been implemented? So the subdivision process takes a long time. We've had one come through so far for approval on the zoning side. Um, I believe they're waiting on some infrastructure uh, aspects of their. Their it's part of a master plan community. Um, just south of Equestrian Point. Okay. Um, oh, this so is that big one. It's well, it's yeah, it's a, a well, it's not that big one. It's another big one. Okay. Um, but uh, it's it's one of six pods. They decided to do it in that, and they they're real excited about it. So the so as soon as they can sell off some of their other pods, 
then they want to keep that one as their flagship project. The engineers that are working on that are actually right next door. Yes, and, they are. And so yeah. we get to talk about that from time to time. Yeah, and I'm really excited to see the work product. Um, I've kind of joked that it's going to make carports great again. Um, some It's not for everybody. I have a carport. Uh, not everybody does. Right. Um, but what it does for the feeling of a neighborhood as far as the feeling of openness um, the with without creating too many weeds and stuff like I mean it's it's huge um, and it and it drastically lowers the cost of, of the housing now they can do garages but there are so, certain things that are uh, that um, encourage or, or at least incentivize carports and and uh, do you foresee with the development of this you know the the popping up of trailer parks and alleys with hookers and drugs do you do you foresee that happening and, and that's kind of an inside joke because a uh, uh, yeah, they, a very large property owner in this community went before council and and accused Tyler um, of having a special interest in this and and said that there was it was going to attract trailer parks and alleys and hookers and drugs. Yeah, um, so trailer parks are already permitted in industrial zones and we just don't see a lot of requests for them. Um, they would not be permitted in this zone. Um, they, um, as far as drugs, I mean. And drugs are going to be where drugs are going to be. Drugs, it's just a matter of who's prescribing or selling, yeah. right? Yeah, I, uh, I know there's a lot of drugs in some really high-end uh, neighborhoods and communities as well. Yeah, they just, they, yeah, the drugs drugs in some neighborhoods tend to come from the pharmacy. Other neighborhoods, it comes from the street. Yeah, it's, it's still and I had the sheriff in here and the, the county attorney in here, and we were talking about crime in Iron County, and that's mm -hmm. one of the podcasts on the What's Really Happening in Southern Utah uh, Facebook group you can find. Um and what they told me was, you know, as population increases, you're always going to have about that 1% that is a criminal element. And so the number of, of instances of crime will increase. But as a percentage of the whole, it really hasn't. And much of the crime that we see comes from trafficking on I-15 uh, with fentanyl and, and uh, mm -hmm. amphetamines. And they said that, you know, the, the markets opened up for morphine because kind of the, fo the fo so focus was taken from that. So. I've, I've got a little different take on crime, okay? And this is uh, quite a bit different, so sorry. But uh, first of all, if you want to talk crime, this is my ancestors too. One of the first uh, things that the settlers of Cedar City did was commit an act of mass murder. Yeah, they you did. You know, that was crime. That certainly changed our statistics for a, while, a long time, right? Um, in the 60s, my great-grandma, that same house on First East, some guy was driving through. This was, uh, I believe it was still before I-15, if I remember right. It was still old Highway 91. A uh, guy was driving through, asked to use the phone, slashed her throat, took her purse, and ran. Um, she survived her injuries, but, you know, crime happens. It happens and, everywhere. There's and, no safe. But on the whole, place. per capita, it has been declining for a long time. Um, and so, yeah. Violent crime has. Property crimes have increased. But Property crime. crime, you're right. Property crimes have increased, and um, but violent crime has decreased. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And as an overall, I mean, I, I teach self-defense, mm -hmm. and, and I study violence, and um, – what I tell people is there is no such thing as a safe neighborhood. You know, the crime statistics go from zero to 100%. Mm -hmm. You're not a victim of crime. Now you are a victim of crime, and crime happens everywhere. Yep. You know, take precautions everywhere. But as an overall, Cedar City is fairly safe, and, and uh, 
I'm, I'm glad that we have that going for us. There's we do. We have we have great officers that work hard. Their yeah. um, they their call volume is a lot higher than I would like it to be, yeah. and we're working on that too. Um, and one of the things that's been kind of a problem for our community is officer retention. We mm-hmm. spend around a hundred thousand dollars to train an officer, and then they go work in West Jordan because they're paying yeah. you know twelve fifteen percent higher. And that and that comes in waves. It's one of those things where your policy gets a little bit behind. You have some attrition. You change it. Uh, you you get a more competitive uh, pay, and then the other agencies complain because now you're poaching their officers, and and then they raise theirs, and and it's 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 hard because it's it's government. Right, so we're we're kind of insulated from a lot of market forces in that. So setting good policy on that is really tricky, and especially when there are a lot of other things that use the same pool of funds. And the county uh, instituted a step in in grade mm-hmm. um, pay schedule. Does the city have something like that? Um, we did a what was it? It was a merit pay adjustment, but not formally a step in grade. And I'm not an HR specialist. Um, that's something that. If we were to look at, um, it would be seven figures plus on an ongoing basis. And where our sales tax revenue looks like it may be slowing down a little bit, we're hesitant to to do that just yet. But we're that is something that we're again with. It's it's all a matter of funding, and um, and we'll see. Uh, we we don't want to raise taxes, and so we're trying to do what we can without that. Speaking of sales tax revenue, mm-hmm. and you knew this was coming. Um, on the ballot in November oh, uh-huh. will be the Recreation, Arts, and Parks wrap tax mm-hmm. will be up for reauthorization by the voters. Um, there's been some controversy recently. Last Saturday, uh, an organization that received $14,000 in wrap funds held a drag uh, paint day for children. And there's some in this community, I'm one of them, who doesn't believe that taxpayer dollars should be used for this type of an event. Mm-hmm. In talking about this, it, it seems as if there's not a lot of leeway or latitude that the city has in whether to give those organizations those funds. So some would argue that if we can't control what they're being spent on, we should take away the credit card and vote no on the wrap tax. Where do you come down on that? Yeah, and that's a good question. I, uh, as I said in the meeting when we were voting on whether to put the question on the ballot, um, I said, "Well, I hate all taxes, but I'm not opposed to having people vote on whether they like this one or not." Right? Um, the um, that one is tricky. I, I believe it was th- two or three years ago. We had an issue come up. Um, and I found myself spending hours reading up on free speech um, and, you know, to what extent do cities in Utah have the ability to regulate that. And I, uh, I spent uh, quite a bit of time reading up on a case that St. George City back in the 1990s took all the way to the state Supreme Court and lost. Um, and, and they just recently had another one. Uh, yes, and they had another one. I don't believe they appealed that one. I think it was the trial court that ruled against them, and they decided not to spend more tax. But it was over the same issue. Similar. Uh, that one was, yeah, very similar. There's always nuances to each case, but in general, when it comes to speech and whether that's permits or funding or anything, government doesn't, at least shouldn't, 
discriminate, right? Uh, if either it applies to everybody in this category or not. And I'm on that RAP committee that deals with allocations. And we, we look at a number of factors. Um, you know, what are your other income sources? Are you, uh, what are, how many local uh, um, uh, residents are using your facilities or using your services? Uh, things like that, and and the funding that was allocated was in line with um, all the other organizations at the given scale that you know requested funding. But yeah, when it comes to you know content-based funding or content-based rules, we we don't get to say as a city, right? Um, and so that's again back to the people and whether they vote to use taxes to fund organizations in the future or. That out of their own pockets, they want to do that. That's that's up to the residents to decide. the The wrap tax is not um, is not one that we, as elected body, can unilaterally force on the residents. The residents have to recertify it every so often, and that's come up this year. I'm a big advocate for more democratic approach with residents having more direct input through ballot measures. We often will take bonds out, and depending on the type of the bond that we take out for the project, some require them to be placed on the ballot and others do not, but mm -hmm. there's nothing within the law that says that it can't be placed on the ballot just because it isn't required. Right. And do you believe, I mean, we, we recently had the basketball, the Max Center expansion, uh, the basketball complex they wanted to tack on to the Aquatic Center, mm -hmm. and the citizens uh, had a referendum to put that on the ballot. That was really all the referendum would have required. And instead, right. city council, you weren't on city council at the time, but... I was. I was for that one. Mm -hmm. Okay, I couldn't remember if you if you just come on or yeah, if you I was hadn't come of, on yet. I, I was either the only one or one of two that voted not to bond for that because I didn't feel it was a good time or that we were getting much bang for our buck. Um, but what do I know? Yeah, I only have to live with my decisions for for a, a longer long period of time. <laughs> well, right. as a result of no. that, one of the conversations that came up was, do we? put forth a, a proposal that anytime the, the city wants to spend more than a million dollars, for example, mm -hmm. on a capital project, it is required to be on the ballot. What would you think about that? Um, I would generally think not. And, and here's why. Um, I, I understand for things, maybe for wants, right? If it's something that we want. But for needs, I mean, we're spending a lot of money on water this year. Yeah. I think we budgeted $14 million for water projects. And, and it, what's our – how are we doing on time? The, We've got about nine minutes. Okay. Let's talk about the most important thing. Water. Right? So let's talk about water. So um, Cedar City is in a unique position. Um, so as far as water rights on paper, what we have to supply our residents with water today We've got the paper water rights to supply about twice what we supply now, okay? Um, and with growth, most of the growth has been far more efficient with water than um, the old uh, style of development. And so um, that, uh, the new growth really, I mean, I'm not saying we would get there, but we could triple in population and have plenty of water rights support to support that. On paper. On paper. But it doesn't do any good to have water rights on paper if you drill a hole in the ground and there's no water there. Right. And so the, there, the state has a mechanism to regulate groundwater because it's a common good in many ways, right? Everybody, just like a river, okay? So for years and years, um, it's always been the case that if you have a river 
and it's running and there's it's a dry year, then the people with the youngest water rights get cut and they don't get to farm or drink out of that water source that year, right? Aquifers are harder to measure year to year, right? But as we see well levels decline in this basin, um, the state comes in and says, look, based on decline, we're thinking that rights originating after this date are not going to be safe yield. And so over the next several decades, we're going to bar those water right users from being able to use um, that water. And that's in that order pre-1944? 1934. 1934. Yeah. Um, and the ones so that we can preserve those groundwater levels for the older water right users. Um, the problem is Cedar City... Uh, it, it fluctuates because we keep buying new water, but approximately 80% of the city's water supply will uh, be cut under that groundwater management plan. And that's the state's groundwater management plan. Yes. So as a city, then, we need to acquire more water rights um, uh, on paper to be able to supply uh, not only who's already here, but also who's going. <clears throat> so uh, as part of that process... Um, I'd only been on the council for maybe three to six months, and I said, you know what, let's let's take a look at this. Um, pulled all of the water billing data from our water users uh, to see what types of homes use more water or less water, what types of zones use more water or less water. And when we build a home or if we build a business, how much water are they using at the meter versus how much are we charging them or requiring them to provide in water rights? Uh, Enoch, Perwin, the unincorporated county, they don't let you pay your way out of it, right? If you want a building permit, you have to provide water rights, paper water rights to be able to um, do that. Uh, Cedar has a policy where you can pay a fee instead. And what we found is that um, new development was um, being subsidized by about 80% on the cost of water rights, um, which is a problem, <clears throat> right? So. And part of that was just because of the increase in water right prices since the groundwater management plan, but part of that was uh, bad calculations on usage. And so um, what we did is is uh, we changed that policy. So now if developers want to build unsustainable developments, they can, but they have to pay through the nose to do it. Um, so 27 grand per door to be able to uh, do that. Or if they want to have a uh, more conservation-minded development where the resident would have surcharges after 12,000 gallons a month, and, and just for context, 12,000 gallons a month uh, more than covers just about every indoor household. 8,000 gallons a month averages 5,000 gallons a month. So, right. But indoor usage uh, is more than covered plus enough water to water about 1,000 square feet of turf. Um, and, and that's in our conservation one, right? Right. Um, that's still more turf than what we're seeing in a lot of uh, new development anyway. But, um, you know, if they're making those those um, uh, concessions, then we can give them a pretty steep discount. Now it's still like, uh, I think it was like nine grand. Uh, so it's a lot more than 20, or a lot less than 27, but it's a lot more than the three grand we were getting before. Right. Um, and then the other issue with that is we're discharging millions of gallons of water from our sewage treatment plant. A little over a billion gallons a year. Over a billion. Mm -hmm. And 
that water at one point was just going pretty much to one place, mm-hmm. and they weren't paying anywhere close to the fair market value for that. So that's changed now. Well, and that's that's a little more complicated too. So the as part of the trade for building the treatment plant on a farmer's property, we agreed to provide them with uh, with water um, to discharge on the property. Um, what we found in our analysis is that um, while the summer water on that agricultural operation is is uh, um, being used very well, the winter water in large part just flows downhill and evaporates in the north end of our basin. Um, it's it's a lot of evidence indicates that it is not making it to our groundwater aquifer. Uh, just different soil conditions out there, and so we've been exploring ways to do that. And even though the water quality of that treatment plant meets all of the requirements set forth by state code. We're still getting some pushback of, well, what if, what if, what if? The poo water, they yeah. call it. Yeah, it's type 2 affluent. And, and I, I'm sorry, I, I call it the poo water all the time. Yeah, so hey, you know what, on. it is. Um, but the great thing is, if it were in a rocky, sandy soil, then that would trickle down through a trillion ton filter mm-hmm. and i mean it would be as some of the cleanest water in the world once it hit the aquifer right it'd be like a spring water coming out yeah all the stuff that travels with the water um uh is already taken care of at the treatment plant so everything else would be filtered out your yeah. plus anything in the sun is going to get zapped by uv radiation yep um I wish that we had time to talk about goats. I didn't get to get to that topic, but I do want to give you a couple minutes, let people know how they can uh, connect with you, um, contact information, website, Facebook, Instagram, how they can send you checks, get a yard sign, all that good stuff. Yeah, so um, I guess the, yeah, the, the really at the end of the day, my biggest goal in Cedar City Council is to make sure that um, that the government locally is as out of the way as possible when it comes to whether or not my kids can live here, right? Um, even if wages aren't as competitive, what kind of red tape do we have in place that is making it harder for them to stay? Um, so um, that's really my biggest concern. Um, that being said, um, you know, I've, I've, uh, whether it's goats or zoning or water, you know, I've, I, I study, I overstudy, uh, the aspects of, of the issues. Um, and once it comes down to it, you know, I'm going to push, even if, even if there's a lot of opposition, I'm going to push to try to make sure that we're doing the right thing for all residents rather than, kind of a sheer majority of, of, well, this group doesn't want this group to, to, uh, to have their way, right? So, so that's where I stand. I want the government to be as small as possible and to make sure that these elections matter as little as possible in the future, right? Because it, it shouldn't have very much sway over, over our residents. Um, for people that want to reach out, um, uh, they can reach out. Uh, my cell is 435-267-2353. I do have a Facebook page. I don't check very regularly. So that's the cell is usually the best way to send a text to that number. 
Um, and I, I can usually find time to meet as well, um, whether it's before or after council meetings or uh, any other time. I'm, I'm fairly amenable when it comes to that. Um, and uh, yeah, if, if when you when you uh, vote in September and in uh, no and in November, uh, just um, who is going to make it um, more likely that the kids who grew up here can stay here? That's that's my biggest question when I vote. All right, that's uh, Councilman Tyler Melling running for re-election, and uh, we thank you for coming in. Real quick, I just want to make a, a shameless pitch here. Um, last year, I started a nonprofit called the Friends of the Iron County Sheriff. And as a result of that, and through the generosity of this community, we were able to raise over $30,000 to assist the first responders with additional mental health in light of the hate killings. And because of your generosity, we've been able to purchase over 100 hours of individual and group therapy for our first responders during that tragedy. Well, we've begun our next fundraiser. In speaking with Sheriff Ken Carpenter, he has identified a need of the Sheriff's Department that's not in the county's budget to do right now. Currently, if a bomb threat or a firearm threat in our schools or in any other community location comes in, the Sheriff's Office has to wait for the state or St. George to provide a canine that is trained to find those items. That could take hours, and those hours could potentially lead to tragedy. So we've started Operation Woof. Operation Woof is going to raise $20,000, which will train, purchase, outfit a explosives-trained uh, canine that can also find firearms for the Iron County Sheriff's Department office. The sheriff will tear me up if I call it a department. It is the office of the elected sheriff. Um, so you can go to our website, friendsoficsheriff.org, and click on the Operation Woof logo, and that will give you the opportunity to make a donation for that important resource for our community. This is Dan Kidder with the What's Really Happening in Southern Utah and the Cedar City Politics and the Southern Utah Citizens for Ethical Government interviews with our Cedar City candidates, and we'll be having some more of those interviews coming up this week. Thank you for watching, and we will see you later.